The tabernacle has been built, but so far it hasn't been consecrated, nor have any priests been ordained. God, it appears, has a plan, a very detailed one. This is a plan that needs sticking to, and he's about to make an astonishing and shocking example of what happens to people who take matters into their own hands. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 28, Slaughter and Fire. Welcome back to the slow train through the world's best-selling book. And to be fair, these probably aren't the parts that have helped it shift so many copies over the past 2,000 years. The book of Leviticus is basically Moses standing by a tent channeling a live feed from God, the details of which concern the rules around animal sacrifice, food offerings and priestly decorum and ceremony. Holy Bible, meanwhile, is basically a podcast presented by an advertising creative director who never ceases to marvel at the Bible and the ripple effect that it has had across the world since it was first published. But enough about me, and back to my podcast. Here in the early days of post-Exodus Israel, priests have no income, and Leviticus describes how these men are to be provided for. Fat and blood are both taboo in Old Testament times. The prohibition on eating fat only relates to suet from bulls, sheep and goats, animals that are sacrificed at the tabernacle. The fat of these animals is known as chelev. All other animal fat is considered kosher and is known as shuman. According to Leviticus, God tells Moses that none of the fat from animals in their flocks or herds is to be consumed. However, if an animal dies naturally or is attacked by predators, its fat may be used for other purposes. Eating blood from an animal or bird is so detestable to God that anyone found doing this must be cut off completely from Israel. Until this point, it has been relatively unclear what exactly the priests may and may not eat from the tabernacle sacrifices. Readers already know that with fellowship offerings, part of the animal and some of the bread is given to God, while the rest is seen as the priest's share. The fat of the animal and the meat from its breast is to be brought to the tabernacle and the breast meat waved in the direction of the most holy place, an action known as a wave offering. While the fat is to be burned up on the altar, the breast meat belongs to the priests. In addition, the meat from the animal's right thigh is to be given to the priest who officiates at the ceremony. Just as many church leaders today receive 100% of their income from their congregations, the same is true in Moses' day. To ensure that his priests are paid, God stipulates that the leftover meat offered at sacrifices should be enjoyed by Aaron and his sons as a perpetual share. There is an unwritten rule that all sacrifices and offerings need to be given in a spirit of gratitude. The Old Testament is clear that God is not interested in resentful givers. No sacrifice should be done as a favour to God, nor does he need these to survive. He is God. Instead, giving a prize animal from a flock or herd is seen as a simple act of human gratitude, worship or heartfelt apology. The time has now come for Aaron and his sons to be ordained as Israel's first official priests. So far, the tabernacle has yet to be christened and God summons Aaron and his sons to his holy tent. He wants the whole of the Israelite camp to see what is about to happen and Moses prepares his brother and nephews for the work which they need to perform. The stipulations for the ceremony have already been described in detail in the book of Exodus and Moses explains to the crowd that what they are about to see has been commissioned by God. First, he washes them, then dresses Aaron in the tunic, ephod, breastplate, robe and turban. 
He hands him the Urim and Thummim and anoints all the furniture with oil before pouring a little on his brother's head. Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, are given slightly less ornate costumes. Theirs consist of tunics, sashes and caps. Next, Moses slaughters the bull and one of the rams, pouring their blood on the altar. He then kills the second ram and bloods the men's earlobes, thumbs and big toes. Bread and meat are waved at the altar before being burned and Aaron and his sons are then sprinkled with blood and anointing oil. The men are told to eat their fill of what is left, to burn what they can't eat and to remain by the entrance of the tabernacle for a week without leaving it. After the week is up, Moses tells his brother to burn a bull to clear away any of his personal sinfulness and to offer a ram to be burned as an offering to God. Between them, the people must provide a male goat for their sin offering and a calf and lamb that are both a year old as their burnt offering. It's worth pointing out that a year old lamb is actually quite a large animal. One year is the age at which a sheep is considered an adult, so the sacrificed animal is far from a frisky, gambolling baby. The people must also offer up an ox and a ram as their fellowship offering, as well as flour mixed with olive oil. And, as if to give a purpose to their work, Moses announces that if they follow these rules, God will make an appearance. As Israel's new priest in charge, Aaron follows the protocols for sin offerings, killing a bull, sprinkling some of its blood towards the curtain, dabbing blood on the horns of the altar of incense, and pouring the rest of the bowl by the main altar. He then burns the fatty parts before disposing of the rest of the animal in the fire outside the camp. Aaron burns the ram piece by piece as his burnt offering, and now it's time to make the offerings on behalf of the people. The goat is killed as a sin offering, then the lamb and calf are dispatched and burned on the altar. The grain too is added to the fire. The ox and the ram are killed, and their breast meat and the meat from the right thighs laid on the altar with the fat. Aaron waves the cuts of meat towards the most holy place when they are cooked, then raises his hands and blesses the crowd. The offerings complete, Israel's first high priest steps down from the altar. Moses and Aaron disappear inside the part of the tabernacle known as the holy place. Leviticus doesn't explain why, but anyone who has read this sequence of events at Aaron's ordination in the book of Exodus knows that this will be to burn incense. Once they come back out... The book describes how God appears in a fire that blasts the altar and consumes all the meat that is cooking on it. The people appear overwhelmed at this manifestation of God and shout for joy before falling on their faces in awe. It's fantastic news for the Israelites who can now see what it takes to please God, but less great news for their livestock which now no doubt eyes the shiny new tent with a lot more suspicion than it did before. After eight chapters of information and ordination, the blast of fire has interrupted the somewhat languid pace of the book. But more drama is to come. No sooner have they been ordained as priests than Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu find themselves falling foul of God. After the ordination ceremony at the tabernacle, where star-struck witnesses see fire from God consuming the sacrificed animals and the burnt grain on the altar, everything appears to be going well with the new priests. This makes Nadab and Abihu's fall from grace one of the most abrupt and unexpected in the Bible. At a time where everything is new and everyone is feeling their way as God coaxes and guides his chosen people, there's always a reasonable chance that things might go wrong. However, with Nadab and Abihu, it is a litany of errors. First, the men take flaming censers to offer fire to God. 
These metal containers are used for burning incense, but the sense is that the men are using their own personal sensors rather than the officially sanctioned ones. The men both bring fire when this is a job for a solitary priest, and it is actually the high priest's role, not one of his subordinates. Even the timing is wrong, the men aren't approaching the altar of incense at either the morning or evening sacrifice. As priests, the men need to set the standard for how the Israelites should behave, and they have fallen far short of what is expected of them. It appears that they need to be made an example of, and fire bursts out of the most holy place, engulfing the two men and killing them. Moses' first reaction seems strange, given that two of his nephews have just died. His brother must be overcome with grief, but Moses alerts Aaron to a message previously given to them by God, but which doesn't appear in any transcripts of their conversations. The lesson is that God will prove he is holy by how he deals with those who approach him, and he will make sure that he is publicly honoured, in this case by killing those who have disrespected his commands. Moses is managing an awful situation and needs to prevent things spiralling out of control for his family. He needs Aaron to find focus in the face of terrible grief and shock so that his brother and remaining nephews don't die too. Possibly paralysed by what has just happened, Aaron remains silent. Moses summons two of the men's cousins to carry the bodies out of the camp, still wearing their priestly tunics. The mention of Nadab and Abihu's tunics is significant, as it means that their cousins can hold onto the fabric instead of bare flesh, which would make them ritually unclean. Moses possibly ensures that it is the cousins, not the surviving brothers, who remove the bodies, as the risk of contaminating Eleazar and Ithamar would mean that there would be no one other than Aaron able to serve in the tabernacle. He forbids Aaron and his two remaining sons to mourn Nadab and Abihu by letting their beards grow and tearing their clothes. If they do this, they will die too, he warns. Worse still, God will vent his anger on the whole community. Everyone else is allowed to grieve the loss of these men, but Israel's three remaining priests must remain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Moses explains to them that they have God's anointing oil on them, which makes them holy and set apart from everyone else. At this point, no one is arguing. God has made it abundantly clear that rules are rules, and people, particularly priests, ignore them at their peril. No doubt still recoiling from what just happened, Aaron needs his brother to do the thinking for him. According to Leviticus, God speaks directly to Aaron, telling him that if he, Eleazar and Ithamar drink wine or any other alcohol while they are in the tabernacle, they will die. This is the second time since the dramatic death of two members of their family that he has used death as a motivator to stick to the programme. His reasoning is that with a clear head rather than a drink-addled one, his priests can identify common and unclean from holy and clean, and they are better able to teach the laws which he has given to Moses. Moses appears to be doing most of the thinking for his family, who must surely still be reeling. He tells his brother and nephews to take the remaining cakes of bread left over from the food offerings and eat them by the altar. Their whole family can also eat the breast and thigh meat as long as it is eaten in a place considered to be ceremonially clean, as these both constitute the priest's share. Keen that every letter of the law is followed, Moses reminds the men that the meat accompanied by its fatty portions must be waved at God first. He is appalled that Eleazar and Ithamar have burned the goat from the sin offering without eating any of it. 
The animal was given to them to take away the sin from the entire community, and eating it is part of the communal de-sinning process. The goat's blood was not taken into the holy place, he says, and so the animal should have been eaten by the priests to complete the sacrifice correctly. Aaron acknowledges that the people made a sin offering, but in light of what just happened to him, he feels that God would have looked down on his family doing something as celebratory as feasting. Moses appears understanding of his brother, but an important lesson has been learned. Making up rules when overseeing tabernacle sacrifices is very much off limits. that happens to Aaron's family, the action flatlines as Leviticus ploughs through another tranche of rules, beginning with warnings about clean and unclean food. The Israelites are a pretty fastidious bunch when it comes to food, mainly because God gives Moses and Aaron detailed instructions on what can and cannot be eaten. The rules of what Israel may or may not eat take up a healthy chunk of the book of Leviticus, and just so that no one can say they haven't been told, the list is re-emphasised in the book of Deuteronomy. As for the rules, any land-based animal that doesn't have both split hooves and a fondness for chewing the cud is out. That means no pigs, rabbits, camels or hyrax, a guinea pig-like mammal endemic to the Near East. Only sea creatures with fins and scales may be served at an Israelite dinner party. All other marine life such as shellfish, whales and squid are unclean. Birds of prey are taboo and Leviticus lists the varied species which the Israelites might encounter. Moses names eagles, vultures, red and black kites, ravens, horned owls and screech owls, little owls, white owls and great owls, desert owls, hawks and ospreys. Gulls are also deemed inedible, as are cormorants, herons, hoopoos and bats. Locusts, crickets, cicadas and grasshoppers are fine, but all other insects are a no-no, including bees, which makes the eating of honey in the Bible an interesting anomaly. Anyone who so much as touched the carcass of an animal considered to be unclean is unclean themselves until the evening. Those who do come into contact with dirty food should change their clothes and even then they need to wait until evening before they can mix with other people. The list of forbidden meat continues. Weasels, rats and great lizards, monitor lizards and wall lizards, geckos, chameleons and skink are all out. Israelites are not to touch these creatures once they have died either, so if a bat dies then falls into a cooking pot, that pot immediately becomes unclean too. Any inanimate object touched by unclean animal remains must be placed in water until nightfall, unless the offending item is a clay cooking pot, in which case it should be broken and thrown away. Any food or water that was in the pot must be discarded, and any ovens that have become contaminated must be broken up. Ovens in Old Testament times are bottomless clay pots, upended and part buried in the dirt, so that the base is wider than the top. Inside are round stones on which the bread is placed. Fire made from hot ashes and burning animal dung is stacked around the pot to create heat and a lid is placed on top to keep it hot. Springs or cisterns aren't affected by unclean food nor are dry seeds which remain clean even after contact with contaminated animal remains. However, planted seeds that have been watered and which then touch an unclean carcass are no longer good for food. Acceptable animals that die prematurely are not allowed to be touched by humans. Anyone who touches one or eats it remains unclean until evening. 
God ends his regulations for what should and should not be on the menu with a complete embargo against animals which move along the ground, a broad stroke which includes vermin, snakes, worms, centipedes, moles, hedgehogs and spiders. God urges his people to set themselves apart from other people by what they do and do not eat, just as he sets himself apart from other gods. Despite this being a tough directive that is put in place while the Israelites are still desert nomads in search of a home, many Jews still live by these rules. However, Jesus later assures his followers that it is what comes out of a person's mouth rather than what goes into it that makes them unclean and offensive to God. The book of Acts relates a vision in which the disciple Peter believes that he is being shown how any beast created by God is good enough for his people to eat which is why Christians can order anything on a restaurant menu without any crisis of spiritual conscience. The Jews still beg to differ, which is why many urban supermarkets today in Europe and America still have a kosher aisle. Having made a comprehensive list of what might be considered edible, Leviticus now busies itself with health and hygiene. If readers wish to know how women are to purify themselves after childbirth, how to manage skin diseases and mould, or how to deal with kinds of discharge, here is where they find the answers. Women are considered unclean for seven days after giving birth to a son and 14 days after giving birth to a daughter. For some reason, the ancients believe that a mother suffers greater damage when a baby girl is born. Baby boys must be circumcised when they are eight days old, and for the next 33 days, the mother can lead a relatively normal life, but is considered temporarily impure and so cannot touch anything holy or visit the tabernacle. After their 14-day self-isolation, mothers of girls must spend another 66 days before they are able to make physical contact with anything sacred. At the end of her seclusion, the mother is to bring a lamb and a pigeon or dove as a sacrifice. The lamb is a general burnt offering to God, while the bird is to purify her and renew her ceremonially clean status. If the woman isn't rich enough to afford a lamb, a dove or pigeon will do. In the New Testament, Mary and Joseph arrive at the Jerusalem temple with their infant son precisely because of this law, and they demonstrate their low financial status by handing over birds to the priests rather than young sheep. At this point, Leviticus goes into a reasonable amount of detail about skin complaints and how these should be dealt with by Israel's priests. Adventure lovers must be asking themselves where the fire and fight of the Bible has disappeared to and why they have now found themselves caught up in religious code. The only polite answer to this is that the Bible sings to its own tune and if it wants to spend six chapters talking about skin complaints and bodily emissions, then it can. These are the passages that never make it into church services and which remain buried in the pages of a book where only the most die-hard fans ever discover them. I can't reiterate enough how rarely these pages are read by Christians or how few non-Christians ever get this deep into Leviticus. It's a true privilege to be here with you This is the Bible Sahara, or Nullarbor, or its giant becalmed swathe of Pacific. But there is beauty in the detail, and many see a God who cares about public health as a God who has the best interests of his people at heart. Stay with us as we plough even further into the Book of Israel's laws, and do share your thoughts and observations with me on Facebook or Twitter. And thanks for making this part of the Bible less lonely. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. 
cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any feedback to contact at holybible.com. Thank you.